The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hi, and welcome back to the Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Sutter, your host today, and we are talking about ADHD today as we have kind of been working through podcast topics. We've had this request um, or a request to talk about this topic several times from families who've shared with us what they would like to hear. And I am so excited to have in the studio with me today, Dr. Tanya Freilich, who is a developmental behavioral pediatrician and ADHD specialist. Thank you for being here, Dr. Freilich. Thanks. I'm so pleased to be here. And we also have Dr. Landon Krantz, who is a general pediatrician with special interest in pediatric mental health care, and he's also a clinical research fellow. He is here as our um, our voice of the of a pediatrician who sees your kids regularly, and we're so glad he's here. Thanks for being here, Dr. Krantz. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to begin our conversation with an introduction to what ADHD is, um, as well as some conversation around the terms ADHD and ADD, and if there's a difference there or what you know, we kind of want parents to know as we begin this conversation. Anybody want to start with that one? Sure. So I can start regarding the terminology. So these days, what you'll hear from doctors as well as from mental health professionals is the term ADHD. And so ADHD encompasses the whole diagnosis, and there are different types of ADHD, such as ADHD inattentive type, ADHD hyperactive type, or if you have both symptoms, an ADHD combined type. And ADD is a phrase or a term that has kind of made its way through the years um, and typically referred to the inattention type, but doctors and mental health professionals don't use that phrase anymore. So when you hear doctors talking about ADHD, they also mean what used to be called ADD, but now we uh, encompass all of the diagnosis and symptoms as an ADHD diagnosis. And so we don't really use the phrase ADD anymore. It's okay to use it, but in the doctor's lingo, we use ADHD. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, And Tanya, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, um, what what is it? What is the basis of this disorder? Yeah, so ADHD is diagnosed when a child has a pattern of hyperactive impulsive and or inattentive behavior that is over and above what is typically seen um, for the child of the same um, developmental or understanding level, um, rather than just their chronologic age. And um, a really important thing about this is it's not just having these symptoms, um, but having them to, again, um, an unusual degree, and so that these symptoms affect how they're able to function. So even if a child is a bit hyper, a bit busy, or a little bit inattentive, but if they're still succeeding and able to participate well in all the things that we would expect for a child of their same understanding or learning level, we wouldn't diagnose ADHD. 
um, further, ADHD is diagnosed um, only when we can't find another better reason for having these ADHD symptoms because there are other medical conditions like sleep problems or thyroid problems or other uh, mental health related conditions like anxiety that can produce ADHD-like symptoms. So your uh, provider will need to make sure that you don't have any of those other conditions that are producing the ADHD symptoms before it is diagnosed. Um, so follow-up for you, Dr. Kranz. Um, as a physician who sees kids, the same kids, multiple times as they're growing up, are some of those early signs and symptoms of ADHD something that you note when a child is young, or do the families typically bring it to you for discussion? Yes, that's a really interesting question. I would say that it's typically brought to me for discussion, sometimes by families, sometimes by teachers, schools, um, other daycare, after-school professionals who are noticing some problems. Um, certainly as someone who is very in tune with ADHD symptoms and treats a lot of children with ADHD, I may be aware of some early signs and symptoms. But you also have to remember that, you know, for my experience, I'm usually with a child for a limited amount of time, maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes, and not frequently in an environment with them where I would, you know, jump to conclusions without knowing more from either the parents in the home environment or knowing more from the school environment and what's going on on a more regular day-to-day -day basis. Um, if there are concerns about inattention or hyperactivity, but it doesn't seem to be causing any sort of disruption, as Dr. Freilich mentioned, I wouldn't rush to a diagnosis or too much of a workup or treatment if the child is succeeding and otherwise doing well. And I would just love to add um, to what Dr. Krantz said. Um, I just, that was said beautifully. And it's important for families to note that, you know, we as providers only have a limited time, you know, with each child. And that also, you know, anybody's beha behavior is going to vary somewhat across settings. And it's a very interesting thing about um, kids and individuals with ADHD that that people can pull it together better in um, when they're with authority figures, you know, for the short period or in situations that they perceive to be high stakes. So, you know, Frequently, um, we won't see, you know, frank symptoms of ADHD during the short clinical encounter, but that does not mean the child doesn't have ADHD. Certainly, if we see it, then it's, you know, that would go toward it, but mm -hmm. not seeing it does not rule out ADHD. That's interesting that for a short time, they can, you know, pull it together and you might not see it. I hadn't even thought of that. That's yeah. it's such an important point. It's really interesting. Even for things like standardized testing, mm -hmm. kids will perceive that it's a high stakes situation and then they're in a quiet classroom with a lack of distractions. So, you know, they can often, you know, do, do well on that and show what they can do. Whereas, you know, when they're at home trying to do homework and they're bored and, you know, they're distracted, um, they're not completing it. So my next question was going to be about age. And I know that you, when you first gave us the introduction, uh, Dr. Freilich, you were talking about the kind of the developmental age of a child. What, what is kind of either the, the chronological age or the developmental age where these symptoms are likely to start um, becoming apparent to families? 
Yeah, so usually families will become more concerned um, about the hyperactive impulsive behaviors when the kids are in the preschool age group. Because, you know, around three to four, you're expecting, you know, this, this child should be able to, you know, sit for a limited time, you know, five to ten minutes for story time, if they're typically developing, that is, mm-hmm. um, and don't have, a, you know, a learning um, del- or, or a learning or cognitive delay. But typically developing, they should be, you know, able to sit still for five to ten minutes for story time um, in this preschool age group. They should be able to, you know, attend, um, you know, the short preschool day without being, you know, extremely overly disruptive. They should be able to take them to some family-friendly restaurants, um, take them out in public without worrying they're going to, you know, run into traffic. So when families are having, you know, those kinds of issues, they start to become concerned. The inattentive symptoms are more um, are, are harder to spot in that age group because, you know, it's not developmentally appropriate to to expect preschoolers to be, you know, extremely, you know, um, focused on, you know, and extremely organized in, in, you know, in getting things done. So usually that inattentive symptoms won't be um, so apparent until elementary school age. And I just thought I'd add to that, too, is that inattention symptoms usually are noticed or diagnosed later in life to the point where even we will see often some teenagers in high school who never had a diagnosis and and were able to coast through junior high and elementary school with inattention symptoms, but the demands of high school may have become um, overwhelming that their inattention symptoms um, are becoming too problematic. And so even in high school, we can see you know, the first signs of, of disruption. But that being said, the inattention symptoms should have always been there, just maybe not as problematic until high school. And so the diagnosis of ADHD requires that symptoms are present before 12 years of age. Um, but that doesn't mean that every child or teenage, teenager will present to their provider before 12 years of age. Outstanding point. <laughs> Definitely. And, and often it'll be those um, very bright kids who are able to compensate for their problems with inattention when they're younger, who then won't present until um, a later age. I think compensate is a much better word than coast, which is what I use. So I think that's a much better way to phrase it. Thank you, Dr. Freilich. So Dr. Freilich, you just gave us some of those signs that, you know, families could see if, um, that might kind of begin that, hmm, I wonder if there's something going on here, a thought process. Are there any others that we should discuss? You mentioned a child that, you know, you're worried that they're going to run off if you're someplace in public, um, don't do well in restaurants. What are some others of these scenarios that might make a family say, I wonder? Yeah, well, I would like to add some of the inattentive um, Mm -hmm. scenarios, too. Um, So, you know, kids in um, elementary school um, should be able to do three, and even a five-year-old should be able to complete three directions. Like if you say, you know, hang up your coat, you know, put your shoes by the door and put the book on the table, they should be able to remember and carry through. This is assuming that their language level, Mm -hmm. you know, is... Is, is appropriate and they understand what you're saying, they should be able to remember and follow through on all three of those. And they should be able to, um, you know, 
well, frequently what we'll hear is that they try to do it or they do some of it, but they sort of forget and get distracted along along the way. So it's not that they're being oppositional and they're refusing to do anything. They're putting forth the effort, but they they can't um, keep it in mind and act and be organized enough to act upon it without getting distracted. You know, there are other things like, you know, kids who are losing everything all the time. So this is not that, you know, they every now and again, you know, their coat ends up in lost and found, but, you know, you know, multiple times a week, they are losing really important things like their coat, um, that their, you know, their, their room is a mess, their backpack is, you know, a mess. They, parents have spent, you know, a lot of time getting them to do their homework. Like they have to, parents have to stay on them to prompt them to pay attention and, you know, keep working. And then the child will put the, you know, stuff the paper in the backpack and it just never gets turned in because they've forgotten all about it. So that's an example of, you know, a a level of disorganization or making very careless mistakes, even though, you know, they know how to do the material, um, but they're just not, you know, sort of self-monitoring um and and those mistakes happen yeah um i I think it's great to bring up the non-academic or non-educational symptoms um such as running off and safety concerns certainly when people think about adhd i think the first thing that comes to mind is you know a disruptive child in the classroom but you know it, it does exist outside the classroom in other environments and so i will ask parents when we're deciding on treatment plans or how aggressive we want to be or how slow we want to be, you know, are there safety concerns? Are you worried about the child running into the street while playing, getting lost in a mall? If it's a teenager, we worry about inattention while driving, um, impulsiveness, you know, and and with teenagers, especially as they're taking on more autonomy and being more independent, you want to make sure that they're safe. Um, So certainly um, the symptoms arise in the educational environment. But it's important to think, too, about how, um, how we can keep kids safe um, if the symptoms are really severe. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about, um, I love, yes, sort of going beyond the educational environment, just thinking about the social interactions, too. You know, if for the hyperactivity or impulsivity there, that could be that kid who's, you know, such such a, uh, you know, a motor mouth that other kids can't get, you know, a word in edgewise. And then that kid is um, sort of intrusive and kind of barging in on what other kids are doing or not giving other kids personal space because they are so, you know, so enthusiastic and so um, impulsive that they're they're failing to you know sort of um, hold back um, in the way that other kids would consider more you know socially appropriate. So is ADHD a disorder that has a spectrum of symptoms um, of severity like some other conditions do? I'm getting head nods. Yes, yes. <laughs> it certainly does, yeah. And so, and, and because it does, and not only a spectrum of severity, but also, you know, on which side of the spectrum you fall on, on the inattention or the hyperactive impulsive side or both, um, treatment and decision-making around what to do for the child should really be individualized. And so I think it's very important for parents and patients, because I work with a lot of adolescents and they sh- they have a choice in this as well and a decision as well, Parents and patients should really find a provider they trust and can work with and have consistency with and work with their schools to really tailor the plan to their needs because, yes, it is a spectrum. Yeah, and it's important to note that, you know, there are people who are have these symptoms but don't have, 
enough symptoms or often enough or they're, or they're not impaired so that um, they don't meet the criteria for the diagnosis even though um, they're, again, somewhere on that spectrum. So what would be the first step for a family to take if they're hearing us in this conversation? They're like, okay, I think I want to have, you know, talk to somebody about the behaviors that I've seen with my child. Where's their first step? Well, thankfully, these days, a large majority, if not all general pediatricians would be able to take those first steps for you. So you should reach out to your pediatrician. Um, and I'd say there's there's two ways to go about it. One is I have concerns about ADHD or focus on what problems you're seeing rather than labeling immediately. So I wanted to meet with my pediatrician because my the teachers are saying that he's having trouble focusing or we're having trouble with homework and focusing on the problems itself will will also kind of help your pediatrician kind of guide the conversation to what may be a potential um, source of the problem. Um, but certainly you can start with your pediatrician. And even, and the reason I bring up the to be more problem focused rather than I'm here for ADHD is because I, I tell parents, even when the diagnosis isn't ADHD, that doesn't mean we're, we're done helping your child. There's still a, a problem at hand and we can find some other venue or way to go about helping you. So I like to be problem focused rather than ADHD focused. And if it ends up being ADHD, we will address that. But if we keep our eye on, on the goals and the problems that we're trying to fix, um, I think we, we end up with a better outcome. And then we're not, um, dis- not disappointed, but we're not left wondering when it's not ADHD because we're really more focused on, on the goals themselves than, than the diagnosis. That was just so beautifully said. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so how does that process then work in the beginning to determine a diagnosis? So we, we've talked a lot about it, and I understand that there needs to be kind of enough disruption or there's a problem. Um, but what does that, that actual kind of evaluation and diagnosis look like? So your um, medical provider, so your pediatrician, will have the parents um, as well as uh, teachers or adults in um, a non-home setting fill out behavior rating scales to get an idea of um, the number and frequency of the ADHD symptoms as well as other things that will often travel along or can mimic ADHD like oppositional symptoms or anxiety or depression symptoms. And uh, these rating scales also have questions about, you know, impairments. Are there actually problems in functioning in in the home setting, in the school setting, you know, with peers, um, with organized activities um, that are associated with these symptoms? And then your provider, though, should not just look at, you know, what's circled on these, you know, rating scales, but should also conduct an interview um, to, you know, understand more, um, verify, you know, that the things that are circled, you know, are they really going on? in the way that, you know, the medical community, you know, thinks of um, these different items, um, as well as to sort of understand more about the context, and then should also conduct, you know, a thorough history um, and physical examination to rule out things that can mimic ADHD. And you talked a bit earlier about other diagnoses that can mimic ADHD. Um, Were there any that we hadn't already talked about earlier that we should get in here? I know you had said sleep concerns and 
Yeah. So, Were there others? Yeah, so thyroid problems. There could be side effects of medications. There could be um, substance use um, that can produce ADHD symptoms. There could be, um, as we mentioned, anxiety or depression or uh, trauma. There could be a learning disability, um, oppositional uh, defiant disorder. Um, so there's there's quite a wide um <laughs> Uh, there's a wide list of things um, that can produce ADHD symptoms. Um, yeah, I would agree. Uh, those that To me, that felt like a very complete list. I would add that the most common ones we see in general pediatrics in younger children, so for that I mean children under 10, are usually oppositional behaviors or learning disabilities. And so how I describe that to families is, you know, if you're driving down the street and you have ADHD, you might not see the stop sign and drive through it. But if you have oppositional behaviors, you see it and you just still want to drive through. Um, and so you're not following the rules. And for learning disabilities, it's it's hard to even read or understand the stop sign. And so those are three different problems with the same result. Um, and then for teenagers, more often, and again, that list was very complete, but the more common ones we see, if it's not truly ADHD, would be anxiety, depression. And so certainly if you're very anxious all the time and you're worrying about a lot of things going on in your life or over-worrying or it's causing distress, it's going to be very hard to focus on your schoolwork. Same if you're feeling depressed. And so those are two really important diagnoses um, for the provider to work through before diagnosing ADHD. Yeah. And I would, I would absolutely agree. Um, I, I do want to introduce a little bit of a, a complexity to this, though, that it's not that these things are mutually exclusive. So in fact, kids who have learning disorders or who have um, oppositional behaviors or who have anxiety and depression also have higher rates of ADHD in the general population. So um, these things will frequently travel together. And so that's part of your, you know, your pediatrician's challenge is to sort out, is it you know, one, the other, or possibly both, um, or, you know, more than one thing going on at one time. Which sounds like then it gets back to what you were saying, Dr. Krantz, about it's important to talk about what's going on, not what you think the cause is. Yeah, I, and yes, I, I think that's the best way to approach it from a, as a team-based approach for the family and the provider and the patient. But, you know, Yes, I do. I, I think that that's a great point that Dr. Freilich brought up, that it's not always one thing. It can be multiple. Mm -hmm. um, and I know one of the other questions you were thinking of asking is when to refer to a specialist. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when there are multiple diagnoses going on, um, some general pediatricians would be comfortable you know, managing the multiple diagnoses at once, but sometimes that is where a specialist does need to come into play. Yeah. And if there's, you know, a great deal of diagnostic uncertainty, your pediatrician really isn't sure, you know, what's going on and, you know, how to target treatments, um, that would be a reason to refer to a specialist. Or if um, your pediatrician has tried, uh, you know, several treatments and you're just not getting anywhere. So while we're on the topic of treatment, if a child is newly diagnosed, what are typically the first treatment options that will be discussed with the family? Well, I would start by saying that if, if your child is diagnosed and if they have the diagnosis, that means it is causing some disruption or some problems for the child, that I think the first thing I would say is that some treatment is needed. And that doesn't mean medication necessarily, which I know some people um, have some reservations about. But I think that if you've identified a disorder and it's causing problems for a child's life, there should be some treatment or action taken to kind of help them along and um, improve their their chance of success. 
Um, so medications is one option that people are very familiar with. The most common medications are stimulant medications, which we could talk about more. Um, there are also non-stimulant medication options. Those are considered second choice or second line medications. But for some people who are very um, concerned or about side effects or some children are very sensitive to side effects, sometimes second line medications are okay to start with. And then there's therapy options. So there's non-medication um, options to help a family um, work around an a child with ADHD and help a child or adolescent kind of um, compensate for their symptoms to still find ways to um, stay focused and stay on task and be successful and be safe. Um, Dr. Freilich, anything to add? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that was just beautifully said that, you know, sort of the non-medication behavioral interventions um, as well as the medication options. And uh, really the studies have shown we get the best results if we're pairing both um, the behavioral interventions and the medications together. But, you know, again, that's not, you know, not everyone does not have to, you know, do everything um, at one time. It's we really do a shared decision making process to figure out if, you know, behavior treatment alone, medication alone or a combination would work um, best um, for a family at a given time. So I would like to talk just for a few minutes. I know the, the medication topic is vast and um but maybe where I'd love to, um, you know, to just kind of focus what we're talking about today is on those families who are hesitant to um, treat with medication. And how do you help families find the right treatment options for them, especially if, if you think that you have a patient that would probably benefit from the right medication if you can find it? Well, I think if families are hesitant, it's it's always great to start with the behavior interventions, you know, see how much improvement a child can get um, with the behavior interventions alone. And then if, you know, improvement is, is not enough, the, ch the child is still um, very impaired, then, to, you know, think about the medications. And, you know, one thing I always, you know, want to point out to families is that, you know, if your child had diabetes and, you know, your child's pancreas was not making enough insulin, you wouldn't hesitate at all to treat with insulin. ADHD um, is also a, it's a brain-based disorder that is, you know, it has a biochemical foundation. And so in the case of ADHD, um, it, we have a lot of evidence um, that the brain cells don't have enough of a chemical signal called a neurotransmitter um, available to talk to um, each other effectively. And so um, we frequently will have to um, use medications to um, get greater availability of the neurotransmitters so that the brain cells um, can communicate. Another important thing that I talk to families about is that, you know, people will frequently worry that, you know, medications um, will be some, you know, gateway to substance abuse. Um, but studies have shown um, that there is no evidence that these medications increase rates of substance abuse um, in individuals with ADHD. In fact, some studies suggest that it may protect against substance um, abuse. Um, additionally, we know that ADHD medications can... Um, Kids um, may have 
lower um, rates of depression, um, fewer accidents. Um, people who have ADHD who drive, fewer car accidents. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of evidence that the medications can be um, very um, helpful in important life activities. Yeah, yeah I, I would echo a lot of what was just said, um, particularly ADHD medications and um, preventing depression symptoms later on is a particular interest of mine. Um, but what I would say to your question is that, you know, every child certainly is different and this is a best a discussion tailored for that child's needs and, and with your provider. Um, but there are certain factors that I think would be good for all parents to consider. Um, one, it, one is timing. So behavioral interventions are effective, but typically they will take a little more time for you to see a difference than a medication. Um, the other thing I, I, I offer to families to provide reassurance if they're comfortable starting medication is that if you see side effects, you are not your child does not want to tolerate or you're not comfortable with, the side effects do go away quite quickly once you stop the medication, and that's always an option. Um, I think one of the challenges as a provider doing medication is knowing that there are a lot of options mm -hmm. and I don't know which medication is the best for your child. And so what happens is that we go off of our experience and what we've had the most success with, but it is a bit of a trial and error. And so when we start the medication path with the family, I try to prepare the parents and patient that, hey, we may have to change doses. We may have to try another medicine. It's a bit of a trial and error at first, but if we find the right medicine and the right dose, it will work very, very well, and hopefully it'll, you'll be very happy with the results. So we love to round out every episode um, by asking each of our guests for any thoughts or final thoughts or advice to just kind of round out our conversation. Anything that you think is important to share that we haven't already touched on or anything you'd like to um, kind of put a stamp on as we finish up our time here? Sure, I'll make, I'll make a, a bold statement. Children with ADHD are not bad kids. And as Dr. Freilich was saying, it is a brain-based disorder. There is treatment for it. We can help them. Helping them will improve their self-esteem, um, help them be successful. And as your provider, um, my goal and hopefully your, your child's pediatrician's goal is just for them to be happy and successful. And if they have a brain-based disorder and we can help, then we'd love to help. But a child being inattentive or disruptive or hyperactive is not a bad child. And sometimes I think that gets mixed in with ADHD and I just wanna uh, dispel that myth. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. That's, that's absolutely so. And, and I'd also um, love to add that um, ADHD also has, you know, there's, um, there can be that, that spark and many individuals with ADHD have that creativity. Um, so it, it brings wonderful things too. Um, and so it's just really important um, to recognize that and also um, that you know, to find those things that your child loves um, and to really nurture the, those things. That's, you know, really the, the key to success because we see so many, you know, individuals with ADHD who um, are who are contributing so much in our world and, you know, are is so successful in, in many different ways. What a fantastic way to mm -hmm. end our conversation. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Young and Healthy podcast. We'll see you next time. 
This episode of Young and Healthy was recorded on February 6th, 2023. The Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. This episode was produced by Bo McMillan, and our theme music was created by Stephen Grieco.